to another episode of the Sensibly Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another awesome podcasting show of greatness. This week, we will be doing another, yes, another awesome episode of The Three Apostates. And what are The Three Apostates? Well, that is me. I am a former Scientologist. And I am joined by Lloyd Evans, who is a former Jehovah's Witness. Hey, Lloyd. Hello. So I, too am, I, too, am at large. I have yet to be apprehended. Yes. And yeah. Jonathan Streeter, a former Mormon. Hey, John. Hey, it's great to be back. Yes. Can I get my coffee. And, yeah, and your new digs. You've got a whole different look now. Yeah, I was uh, I was insanely jealous of the setup y'all have. I was just like <laughs> out in outer darkness. I didn't have anything, so I got my props. It's great. I'm, I'm, I'm aspiring to be like you guys. Awesome. Well, you'll get you know, there one day. You'll get there one day. Yeah, that's right. You'll, uh, one day we hope. Keep that working you at it. Achieving podcasting greatness. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, okay, guys. So as is our want, we'll just get right into it. Here we we like to compare, contrast, talk about our former groups, what they're up to now, what we experienced in them, and how they are similar, how they are different, and we have found so many similarities as well as, of course, um, some pretty interesting and key differences in our groups. This week, we're going to take on um, a topic that is key to what destructive cults are, or high control groups, cohort, you know, groups that engage in coercive control. There are so many ways to describe this. You don't have to stick with the word cult, but, um, you know, authoritarian groups, right, totalist groups, etc. One of the key components of these groups is something we call phobia induction, which sounds very scientific and kind of weird, but really all it means is fear-mongering. Um, creating fear in the followers. Um, this is a very, very important component of the destructive abusive relationship between the cult leadership and the followers, because the leadership has to give the followers a reason to be followers and to stay followers. And phobia induction is key to keeping people in line and keeping people on board. So I actually pulled a quote here from an article on this from the Open Minds Foundation, which has a website that has some great articles on this and other characteristics of these high control groups. And it says, they wrote here, of course, dire threats have been the rod of control for countless generations. The formula is simple. Do as I say or be reviled and punished. And this is a rule that is used in, in all of our groups uh, to one degree or another with various uh, subjects of fear. So we're going to get into this. So guys, well, I don't know. This is a huge topic. Where do you want to start? Well, Jonathan was once afraid of coffee, and now yes. he's kind of overcompensating, as we can see, by <laughs> chugging it down, even while we're doing a show. So it's shameless, really. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't have to talk because Lord, uh, Chris was <laughs> educating people and everything. You know, you guys. I don't know. I mean, you have to realize. You say Mormon. It's the Church of Jesus Christ oh, of Latter Day Saints. Yes. Now, 
that name itself identifies the religion as being one of these millenarian religions whose very name encodes a form of phobia induction. And that is the, the latter day aspect of it is a reminder to all the members that we are in the last days. And there's a whole theme that Jehovah's Witnesses, I know, mm. deep you know, dig deep into this well about Armageddon, the return of Christ, and all of the destruction that's going to happen with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, implicit in the idea that we're preparing for the last days is that you have to do the right things so that you're on the right side when Christ comes and the end of the days, the end of times happens. And so that fear in and of itself is just kind of saturated throughout the entire thing. And, and in sometimes it's kind of in the background, you don't think about it, but at any moment, a leader can invoke the idea that we need to be ready for the last days. And I sent you guys a clip a little while ago. Oh, of, I, don't, I don't actually read anything you send me, Jonathan, but go on. Yeah, I don't either. Well, I, I actually yeah. purposefully just... I expect it. I know. You guys are jealous. Anyway, so... <laughs> It's, you know, our prophet, our dear leader, explaining tithing and the principle of tithing. And there's so many different ways that an organization could ask its members for donations. You could have just, you know, if, if it's within your heart to give and you want to take part in what we're doing, then we would be happy if you would give money. But that's not what he says. His tithing is one of the things that will keep your name on the rolls of God's people and will save you from burning at the day of vengeance. So... You know, you guys have seen in the news, the Mormon church has $124 billion in reserve, but yet yeah, it still uses, yeah, it still uses fear to induce people to comply with its instructions. And well, if you watch form, the show, if you're a fan of the show Expanse, you know what that money's for. A it's spaceship. It's going to build a massive spaceship one day. So that's right. That's yeah. That's a great show, Well, that's show, after Mitt <laughs> Romney becomes president and then becomes, you know, the, the right. chief chief officer yeah. of the space force yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously well, i think I, yeah. I think jonathan's hit on a really interesting thing then which he rarely does so let's let's leap on this um he, he he's hit on let, let's call it the ticking clock factor yep because mormonism has it as, as we've just heard jehovah's witnesses have it and as he was thinking, I was imagining, my mind often wanders as Jonathan's talking. And in this case, it wandered to the film Dunkirk, which is one of my absolute favorite films. And you'll notice that in the film, there's, there's kind of the, the noise of a ticking clock going all the way through. And it's reminding you of the urgency of the situation that these, these guys are in. And, and bad things are going to happen if they don't sort this out quickly. Yeah. And it's just, it's, there's a similar kind of thing going on with Jehovah's Witnesses and has been going on since the inception, which is we are in the last days. Oh, good grief. Armageddon is coming any minute. How do we survive it? And, and that's been the narrative for 140 years of, of the Jehovah's Witness religion in its various um, iterations. Obviously, Armageddon never ends up coming, but they have to keep people on tenterhooks thinking that it's coming any moment yep exactly and you know we even had this in scientology and this wasn't something i i had thought of initially as one of the one of the points to bring up about scientology because there's wait, so wait, many it, of them elron <laughs> or xenu's coming back which yeah, one no, no neither one um because xenu's locked up forever in a in a in a prison with a with an endless battery he so sounds like the end boss he's gonna be the end boss 
Yeah, he's he's. Is it like a Tesla at, battery? It's like a really efficient battery. Yeah, it's a, it, okay. literally an endless battery, right? Like okay. apparently it's been in operation for you know seventy million years. Okay. And um, and of course Hubbard. Well, it kind of depends on which flavor you want to believe of of mythos about you know whether Hubbard's coming back or not. But the but the but what I was going to go in on actually is this Armageddon point because Hubbard didn't talk about an an end times as far as some supernatural force creating that. But he, uh, all the way back to the 1950s and 60s, was inferring that civilizations up there, out in space, might come here again and invade and take over Earth as they have done in the past. I mean, if you think about the Xenu thing, that's that whole story is kind of this you know, universal genocide story. And he sort of puts there that something like that could occur again easily. so he doesn't say it will occur he says it might occur yes right it's, and that actually kind of makes it even worse because there's this uncertainty factor right and so you're constantly like oh my god he even said one time he was uh sitting um uh eating dinner at at in in uh, at his home in saint hill in uh, england and his and his uh daughter uh comes running up and she's got these white bright boots this is in the 60s so they were wearing those big you know knee-high boots and he said they look just like the spats that the space force guys used to wear in up in uh you know the markabian space civilization i and think they thought, wear them in futurama as well in yeah, some of these. yeah exactly yeah. and he yeah. said uh he said oh they're here that you know he saw them out of the out of the side of his eye and he said up oh, here they are they came back now we're all for it, right? And he taught, and he said this in a lecture. You just go, really? And then, and it gets your mind, you know, in this whole other different direction. And then he reinforces it like a year or two later with an issue that says, you know, when the oil crisis was going down and the world was going to hell in a handbasket because of oil. Peak oil. Well, we've only got five years, guys. That's what the scientists are telling us. So we better hurry up because the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You never know when it's all going to go down. Right. And this kind of stuff is used for recruitment and for you know as well as so they he played on insecurities that you know society might not necessarily connected with scientology itself but that scientology would be the answer if society were to break down you you have similar things with jehovah's witness literature where they will point to natural disasters and economic doom and say well this is all linked in some way so what we're seeing here is part of the sign that jesus gave because a witnesses use a, a, a passage in matthew chapter 24 where jesus describes all of the things that will happen leading up to the end of the jewish system of things and although there is there's some pretty crazy stuff in there like i think the moon going dark and all sorts of stuff most of those things you could argue were fulfilled in the first century when the Romans destroyed right. Jerusalem in 70 AD. But of course, there has to be a grander fulfillment. And Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, all of these things that Jesus spoke about are going to happen any moment now. And oh, and look, here in Matthew 24, verse 45, it talks about a faithful and discreet slave who are going to provide all the answers at this time. And, oh, we just happen to be that slave, and we've got all the answers. So if you want to avoid all of these things, you need to listen to us. Yep, exactly. Same same with Scientology is presented as the solution before, during, and after the 
world goes to hell in a handbasket, right? So it's supposed to prevent it from happening in the first place if we work fast enough. But this is so it was used as as a as a motivation, as a <clears throat> sort of let's go, you know, it's gotta we we don't have a lot of time. And this would this would manifest in ways like Tom Cruise in his uh uh turtleneck video, uh where he told where he was accepting that freedom medal of valor uh you know that hasn't the, aged the, well has the, it no, no. that, that <laughs> must be a, a source video. of constant embarrassment for him whenever he sees <laughs> yes. of... exactly that was never intended to be made public no um but he said in that video you know every day you know i ask myself before my head hits the pillow have I done everything I can possibly do to advance Scientology, right? It's that, that is the attitude of the Sea Org. We were actually uh, lectured to by Sea Org executives about, hey, if Tom Cruise's attitude is that, then you guys should be working 10 times as hard, right? So um, so that that's not necessarily directly phobia induction, but it's a result and, you know, it's sort of ripple effects of that. My, to which my answer would be, Tom Cruise gets paid a lot more to do this shit than <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he right. decides to pay. <laughs> It's funny yeah. how, uh, it, it, always when we compare these things, it's so interesting to see how Scientology is able to accomplish some of the same and pull some of the same psychological levers, even though they do it without a god figure who has the power sufficient to, to do these things. Mm-hmm. But um, beyond that, it, it you know, I get the sense from both of you guys that the same thing happens where they're not only using this upcoming disaster as a motivational thing, but then there's this undercurrent of urgency that happens. And, you know, whenever you study psychology and, and even marketing and everything, the, the sense of urgency is something that can be used to really kind of overwhelm people's cognitive thinking and critical faculties just because you, you, you get this idea that you have to do it now. There's not enough time to think and consider things. You really just have to dive in and get it done. And to me, I mean, I really feel like that's kind of part of the element of how these things work. Um, but I wanted to get you guys you're taking, you know, we've now looked at like the end times or the upcoming destruction that's going to happen as one aspect of phobia induction. Another aspect that we see in Mormonism is the adversary or Mm -hmm. Satan. And this is something that, you know, you could have a leader in general conference talking about how we have to be good and the different things that we have to do. But then he'll say, there is an adversary. We have one guy who's German, and so he, he says it like, you know, we, we have an adversary who's the enemy of our soul, and he wants to get you. And so then that that is a Does different... Does he stroke way- a cat while he's saying this by any chance? I'm just wondering. <laughs> well, you have to understand, the German, his name is Elder Uchtdorf, and he's like, he's an attractive guy. We call him the silver fox because... You find him also- attractive. Well, no, that, I mean, he, it's men. Because this no, is a whole women, other episode that we need to women do. Women want oh my him God. and men want to be him because he's, I mean, wow. he's a suave guy. He's a, yeah. he's a former airline pilot. He talks with this German accent that the women find very, very attractive. And just, not only that, but he's also the most progressive of all of the apostles. He's the one that really uses the message of love rather than the message of and on the subject of phobia induction, it's weird because this is the type of double messaging you, you'll find in a lot of these groups. And one moment he'll be using the adversary, you know, he's out to get us. And so we've got to be careful. And then he gave a talk in 20, 
18, I believe, um, specifically about phobia induction. And he starts out his talk talking about the problem with fear and how fear can be used to compel and coerce people to do something. And that as a church, leaders and members, we are making a grave error when we try to compel people to do things from the basis of fear rather than the basis of love. And that talk was just phenomenal. It really changed people's perspective on things. And, and when the former Mormons heard this talk, we were like, oh my God. But of course, you know, you watch the entire conference and there's many, many leaders speaking. Like half of the rest of the leaders were bringing up all of these things that are actually phobia induction, but there was this glowing light of somebody who actually called out the manipulation for what it was. And I can give you a link to that. I, I condensed the most important part of his talk into a well, short What he's video. also done there is he's kind of made a rod for his own back because if he then ever results again in the future to phobia induction by talking about the great enemy, then he's a, instantly a hypocrite because he's doing the, the exact same thing he's warned his audience that they shouldn't do. I thought well, about this, it, Lloyd, and I think I, I'm going to cut you off, Chris, because I got to yeah, respond yeah, yeah, to yeah, Lloyd's yeah, criticism yeah. because I think the brilliance of doing that is that these groups and the leaders, there's really a double think, double speak action going on where, um, at any point, if he decides to use it in the future, he can always say that what he was talking about was fear based on false things. And so the way that they do the, the messaging is that the leaders are never wrong. And that is the, that's what happens in the minds of members is that we as members specifically manipulate how we interpret things to give the leaders a way out. When you're in that believing space, you will always find as members uh, an excuse for the leaders because they represent God. And so to, it kind of, they can say whatever they want and the leaders will always find a way that it's okay. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I have or to the agree. The members I, will find. No, you're absolutely right. This is exactly the same in Scientology, by the way. L. Ron Hubbard specifically said the only way to control people is to lie to them. And then uh, talks about um, how uh, hypnotism is uh, putting people to sleep, but Dianetics and Scientology is the is the opposite of hypnotism because it wakes them up, even though it's using the exact same techniques. So there's this sort of like acknowledgement of a thing, but then positioning, but 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 then almost by acknowledging it or putting it out there, you proof yourself up against accusations of that because that's, look you're exactly you're saying it. it's bad you're showing how yeah. these other groups are doing this and it's and bad how, just not know. when i do it basically exactly. right yeah right hubbard just used the, to rail against yeah. organized religion of, yeah. of almost all stripes especially catholics because this yeah. was in the 50s i think catholics were more jehovah's hated. witnesses have published material against propaganda and saying how right. terrible propaganda is so <laughs> right. yeah yeah the hypocrisy really does know no bounds on on this stuff yeah. But Jonathan hit on, obviously, another feature because we started off talking about the ticking clock. And yep. um, for for, John, for for Mormonism or for the Church of Latter-day Saints, it's the latter days. For um, Jehovah's Witnesses, it's Armageddon. For Scientology, it's a possible interplanetary conflict by the or, sounds of things. Or mankind bringing or about, mankind its, own bring about its own destruction. Or mankind bringing about its own destruction. 
So See, Hubbard have... was real open-ended about it. He was kind of yeah. like, well, death could come from here or here or here or here. The vaguer so... you are the details, the easier it is to get away with it. Exactly. But, but my point is that you have, in, when we're talking about phobia induction, and I just prefer fear-mongering, when we're talking about fear-mongering, yep. you have the ticking clock, and you also have the bogeyman. And yes. so for uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, to an extent, it's the same bogeyman and that's Satan. Probably there are different interpretations of exactly what Satan's doing and how Satan is a bogeyman and what agents Satan is using to achieve his, his evil schemes. Um, arguably, there's a greater emphasis on demonizing apostates i'm gonna say in jehovah's witnesses than in mormons because basically former members are, are referred to as as mentally diseased and speaking gangrenous words and eating at the table of demons this is all Damn. language to seriously it's all in the literature i could find you the quotes but it, yeah. it, all of it creates this bogeyman that people are terrified of and there's a there's a clear utility in terms of Jehovah's Witnesses in creating this bogeyman, particularly with the emphasis on apostates, because if you can make apostates this these terrifying people who who are, or who are almost bearers of a contagious disease, then you are terrified of seeing anything they've got to say. And you're terrified of hearing the other side of the argument. So this fear-mongering has a very clear utility in the bogeyman sphere. Agreed. Our Scientology's bogeymen aren't necessarily even entities. They are your yourself, your reactive mind. That mm. part of your mind that has all the stress and trauma. But you do have collective. SP, don't you? Well, yes. Yeah, so then there's also SPs too, right? Mm. And PTSs, potential trouble sources, people who are connected to suppressive people, but mm. aren't themselves the bad guys. It's a, in a way, it's um, a, it actually it's kind of funny. In a way, Hubbard was sort of uh, throwing a little bit of a precursor out there to a um, a much more valid theory now of sociopaths, apaths, and empaths. Right, SPs are like the sociopaths, and PTSs are the apaths, the people who can be easily manipulated or affected by the SPs. And Scientology, of course, has the whole solution to being a PTS and, you know, will make you into a bad guy or a good guy. But if you're PTS, you're kind of in this gray zone, and you got to get handled and stuff. And you could have accidents, you could have illnesses, you could die. I mean, all kinds of bad things happen to people who are PTS. So you don't want to be PTS. And you don't ever want to go there, right? So there's so there's layers of this of this of this fear mongering uh, in that regard. L Lloyd, I was struck by what you were describing the um, the the descriptive terms that the leadership uses for apostates, mm. and I mean you're absolutely right that there's a psychological power in describing the people who are the apostates as eating at the table of demons and. Mm. Um, it, it, you know, all of those different adjectives that you mentioned, I can completely envision how it would change how believing members view anyone who chooses to go outside of the faith. Mm. And, you know, it, the root of a lot of that is this fear that you don't want to be, you know, catch the same contagion or you don't want to be associated with demons. And in Mormonism, we have 
similar themes, but they're not as graphic and explicit as what you're describing. Uh, in Mormonism, a lot of it will be that it's not that you necessarily may be even willingly dealing with demons, but you may be um, kind of influenced by Satan or influenced by the adversary because you have left the church and you no longer have the, pre- the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so you don't have that, that protection. And so you may inadvertently be doing Satan's work. And, and so that's kind of why the members need to be wary of you. Um, that is something that I think even with my own family members, um, early on in this process, um, one of them made this illusion that I was doing Satan's work. Um, and it was one of those moments where I can't tell if you're joking or not. When I first started, um, you know, writing and talking about my feelings on these things. But there's this concept that you're being deceived as apostate. And so the condition adjective has also been used with by Mormon leadership to describe people like myself and even people who were, remain within the church but have progressive ideas who may disagree with the brethren on some things. That type of thing is called a and then the word that they use for how they're safeguarding the young generation is that they're inoculating the generation from, you know, harmful interpretations of historical events that might erode faith. And, and so there's that language that alludes to fearful things that is definitely a part of the culture and, and rhetoric of the leadership. Mm-hmm. And just to highlight the difference between these two fears. So, again, I'm going to call it the ticking clock and the boogeyman. So you could be an ex-Jehovah's Witness who is disfellowshipped and therefore feels that the, when Armageddon comes, you're doomed. So when Armageddon comes, you're going to die because you are an evildoer. But you could still be, and, and obviously to have that belief, you're still under the thrall of Jehovah's Witness indoctrination. And then you could jump on YouTube and see someone like me talking and want to attack me because I'm an apostate. And in your mind, you're thinking, okay, I may be doomed when Armageddon comes, ticking clock, but at least I'm not an apostate, boogeyman. I'm better than this guy is, and therefore I'm going to write a comment explaining about how he's wrong and he's evil and he's misleading people. And that's going to at least make me feel better. And potentially even I'll get some brownie points when the big A comes. Maybe I won't get a fireball. Maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe my <laughs> life will be ended in, in a more humane way. Who knows? But so are you saying that, that that's a pomy type thing where somebody exactly. is physically out? They're not associated with the the group, but Indeed. mentally they're in. They still have a belief in all of the fear based things. So that, that takes us to the XJW way of defining these these people. So if you're PMI, PIMI, you're physically in, mentally in. If you're POMI, you're physically out, mentally in. You're still indoctrinated. You think that when Armageddon comes, you're going to be destroyed because you're an evildoer. Um, yeah. the, the ideal thing to be is either PMO, physically and mentally out, at least, m- at least mentally you're free, or POMO, physically out, mentally out. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I think that's trans- where... Go ahead, Chris. I've well, I was going to say that translates in Scientology world for me as, as independent Scientologists. 
Mm. People mm. who have left the church, they're no longer under, you know, the auspices or author- authorization or whatever of the church because they the church kicked them out or they got declared or they left or whatever. But they still are hardcore believers, true believers in Hubbard's mm. dogma and, and, and practices. And would they attack you? Oh, yeah. They come yeah. around on my channel really? and they troll me. Oh, yeah, mm. absolutely. They yeah. hate me because I've... I've thrown out there that, you know, various opinions. I've tried to say, look, you know, tolerance, understanding, all that. But at the same time, I say most of the time that's just a stepping stone on the mental recovery path out. And I'm trying to enlighten the public at large about it. But I end up kind of insulting them because they don't feel that way yet because they're they're going through a path and they haven't. And there there are milestones they need to hit, you know, so so I get I get that from them. Yeah. Hmm. So I wanted to move us from the ticking clock, the bogeyman, to mm. uh, the next type of fear that I kind of see affecting um, these groups, and that is the the other side of the coin of all of the positive things of the group. So in Mormonism, there's a lot of things that it really likes to talk about. It brings to the world and to individuals' lives that are great. And one of the central things is the eternal family and the eternal marriage. And that is the idea that we've tapped into the very human instinct to, in, within your own family, feel very tribal and possessive and endeared to it. And so what if you could have that same family life for eternity? And so all of the family relationships that you really value now can last into eternity, whereas everybody else thinks that when you're dead, you know, you're either worm food or those relationships absolve. And so Mormonism brings very strongly this concept of eternal families and holds it as both a carrot and a stick in front of people because you have to go through the proper steps and you have to endure to the end, doing what the brethren say, attending meetings, doing your scripture study, if you want to achieve that eternal family status. And at any point, if you want to leave, then suddenly you've lost that eternal status. And this has you know, cultural implications within a family. If one spouse, for example, decides that they no longer believe, then if the other spouse can go on that same journey, then suddenly the choice of one spouse to leave destroys the concept of the eternal family for the other one because they're bound together. And there's, you know, we could probably do a whole other hour on the secondary kind of meta consequences of some of these Um, doctrines, but how does that play out in each of your groups where the threat of losing the blessings that can Mm. come to you is an aspect of the the phobia induction or fear-mongering? I'm going to call that wretched heathen. So ticking clock, (laughs) boogeyman, wretched heathen. And you do kind of get that in uh, Jehovah's Witness video propaganda. Uh, As you'll know, uh, Jonathan, I know you follow the JW Broadcasting um, videos you'll get these testimonies from people talking about how, for example, they grew up as witnesses, but they lost their way and they found their way back to the organization. Or perhaps they uh, grew up outside of the organization and they were preached to and they were living an immoral, debauched life. And then they joined the organization and everything was fantastic and amazing. And it's almost like looking down on everyone outside of the Jehovah's Witness bubble as basically wretched and miserable, irrespective of the fact that they're doomed. So yes, they're doomed when Armageddon comes, we know that. But even if you take Armageddon out of the equation, look at the lives these people are leading. They're miserable, 
they're all on drugs, they're all alcoholics, they're all violent. That's the sort of person you would be if you weren't a Jehovah's Witness, is the message that's in the video propaganda that Watchtower's putting out at the moment. I don't know whether that relates to what you were saying. No, I think I think that's a good example of it. And yeah. each of us have, you know, each of the groups focus on different things, but a lot of it is, I mean, I get the sense that what each of these groups have done is they've captured happiness and they're holding mm. happiness hostage. And now they can control whether or not you are yeah. able to feel you're happy. You're not going to be happy unless you're in our club. It, the minute right. you get out of our club, you know, try and find someone uh, on in the preaching work who isn't in our club. Look at them. They're miserable. And of mm -hmm. course, they're not necessarily miserable, but even in your mind, you're thinking, well, I'm sure once the doors close, they'll, be, they'll collapse in, in tears because their lives are really meaningless. Even though they seem to be smiling, I know that their lives yeah. are meaningless and I know they're miserable. Yeah. yeah. Chris, well, what I, about I, you guys? I, yeah, I have to pipe in here because losing your eternity is the number one fear in Scientology. It is really? the it's the basic bottom line fundamental upon which all the other fears are installed or put or or can be used to control. And by this I mean, you know, obviously not on day one or day two. You gotta go all the way into becoming a true believer. But once you are, this business of losing your eternity is the thing that every single person who is disconnected well i can't say every single person obviously but when you when you get a letter of disconnection from a family member or your best friend or whatever right often within the language of their disconnection will be you know you you are losing your eternity by turning against the church of scientology or going against it or leaving it or not doing it anymore you're denying yourself your eternity and by this, they mean that you, as a spiritual entity, have an immortal existence. You can't die. So the question in Scientology really is the quality of your life. And so far, for the last billions and billions of years, the quality of your life has sucked ass. You've been stuck here on this planet, going from body to body, trapped in a world you didn't create and have no control over. And doesn't this all suck? And now you've been shown the truth. You've been shown the behind the curtain this is what's actually going on you're a spiritual entity and we can rehabilitate you and we can put you in a position where you can be cause over your life you can be cause over life period you can just you know you can be in charge of everything and that's gaining your eternity that's regaining your eternity so losing your eternity means you don't achieve all those potentials you are cursed to be doomed to this endless cycle of life after life and forgetting everything every time you die. So every life is, you know, you, you're starting over again from scratch, forgetting everything that's happened to you. So, you know, wouldn't that be a Sisyphus-type curse of pushing the rock up the mountain and every day it's right back at the bottom, only it's so bad you don't even know you're cursed. So every day you think, pushing that rock up the mountain is the first and only time you've ever done it, right? And now you've got this view of that, and you can see it, and you go, oh my God, I could bust out of this prison. I could be free of this. This is what Scientology is going to give me? Well, hell, of course I will forsake all connections in order to break out of this eternal struggle, because this is my eternity. How could there be anything more important? That's why I say it's the ultimate 
carrot or the ultimate goal or the, you know, so losing it is the ultimate fear. Mm. You know, Lloyd, as I heard you describe the wretched apostate, I think there's another thing that um, plays to the people who remain in, and that is the, it's a form of um, mystical manipulation and reframing. And that is that when people leave, and they start to make choices and do things that are that are otherwise forbidden by the group. Um, and as they go through their life, you know, everybody's life has good things and bad things that happen. Uh, they'll start to reframe and interpret anything that is bad that happens to the people that leave as proof that the bad things happening in their life now are the result of them leaving the group. And so in Mormonism, where there's this strong prohibition against um, alcohol, for example, then if somebody leaves and then they end up starting to drink alcohol and then they start having a drinking problem because they, they didn't go through the normal adolescent process where people learn and modulate their use of these things. Mm. And, and there's almost this now that you're doing something that was previously taboo, you go overboard. Uh, look at my coffee, then, um, <laughs> then um, you know, it does have negative consequences. And that's because, yeah. you know, not all of these groups are giving advice that simply pulls it out of the air. And in many cases, it's rooted in real things that they just then add a whole layer of control over that it doesn't mm. necessarily require. And so then it's just like, you know, not only should, do you need to stay, but if you leave, your, your life is going to fall apart like this. I had one leader tell me when I was in the process of leaving is, you know, John, when you leave, when your life falls apart, when bad things happen, don't come back and blame the church because you know the consequences of your choice to leave. Hmm. And I don't know if that plays out in y'all's yeah. groups. Um, yeah, I, I guess so. And and in a way, if you think about it, it it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Because if you set people up with a whole bunch of rules that control and micromanage their lives in all sorts of repressive ways. I'm thinking specifically in terms of the many, many rules on sex. Um, and I happen to believe that this, that sexual repression is a very dangerous and dark area to, to go down for any group. You know, once you start tinkering and tampering with people's sexuality and telling them, who they may or may not have relationships with and how they may or may not have relationships with these people. You're affecting people in, in profound ways that can manifest themselves in all sorts of, of, of ways. I'm, I'm thinking as well in terms of obviously, you know, child sex abuse, which is obviously a problem, I think for all of our, our respective groups. Yep. So, you know, these are, dark forces that shouldn't be tampered with and it, it's almost in, inevitable you're using people... phobia induction right now by using that word <laughs> one it's almost in a, no it's accurate because it's almost inevitable that once people break out they are going to overcompensate for the ways that they've been repressed it's just human psychology this has been denied to me now the time out, I'm going to overindulge. You, you know, exactly. you mentioned alcohol. Exactly the same thing could be said when it comes to sex. Exactly the same thing could be said when it comes to drugs. And, and then, of course, they're going to have this sneering attitude of, ah, well, you brought, your, brought, you brought all this on yourself because you left God's one and only true organization, which was protecting you from all of these evil things. We know exactly why people overindulge. We know that it's human psychology. That, they, that Not everybody, but some are going to go to another extreme. But yeah, isn't it 
twisted the way that groups jump on that as further evidence as that that they are god's one true or they are the the true path to enlightenment well Hmm. i gotta say right now that this was such a matter of course in scientology that i was sort of like well yeah i mean this was this if you want to leave staff your life's going to fall apart if you want to leave the sea Org, oh your life is definitely going to fall apart uh, you're going to go out ethics, quote unquote, right? Meaning you're mm. going to go down this path of debauchery and, and, and awfulness. Because just look at everybody who leaves the Sea Org. Look at what happens to them, right? Sort of. They thing. become like Chris Shelton. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I, and it's funny because, um, uh, anyway, I won't even get into that. I'll just say yeah. that this was done at every level all the time in Scientology. You leave Scientology you're going to you're losing your eternity you're going to you know your life is going to you're going to how they put it in scientology is you are going to pull in so much crap your your life is going to you know you're going to pull in all these bad things that are going to happen to you and notice the language again it's it's blaming the victim right you're going to pull in all of these things it's going to be on you that all this bad stuff is going to happen because of your bad choices that you're making right now losing your eternity and leaving scientology or leaving staff or the sea or or whatever it is that they want you to do this has actually even been used in sales mm. <clears throat> if you don't get this next step right now Oh, actually, here's a here's a good one. This is baked into the policies of the church. There's a particular area of the levels of indoctrination, the bridge to total freedom that Scientologists do, where they go up these levels all the way up to OT, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, whatever. Between the point of the state of clear and the state of OT three, the Xenu story, between that area of the bridge is called the non-interference zone. It's got a special name. And the reason it has a special name is because Hubbard said, once you go clear, you are in danger. And you have to get up to OT3 as quickly as possible. And until you do, you're in this no interference area. Nobody else can, you know, you can't do anything else except these services to get up to OT3. And you got to do it fast because you're in danger. And it sounds like a sales gimmick, and at the end of the day, it is a sales gimmick, but it's fear as a sales gimmick. It's like you don't even know because the the OT levels are confidential and you have no idea what's on them until you get to them. And until you you pay a lot of money. Well, exactly, which you have to pay a lot of money for or a lot of time as a Sea Org member. Yeah. This ends up, this gets into a fear category. I wanted to, I don't have a, a name for it, but uh, other than fear of the unknown within you. There is something inside you, in, within the world of Scientology, you are told that you are so, well, to be blunt, you're so fucked up as a spiritual entity, you can't actually know how fucked up you are because of all these horrible things that have happened to you that you don't even know about. You can't remember. In fact, with the Xenu story, you're told it's impossible for you to remember it. There's all these mental mach- you know, men- machinations and traps installed in you that you can't even be aware of because they're so strong that if you were to start to lift the lid on that mental trap, it would blow up and you would die. Your body would actually die. So this is a level of fear that is 
that is so deep. Mm. Um, and it really does, I mean, affected me for decades. I was, I yep. was terrified of what is it about me that is so bad that I don't even know about it. And it's, and Scientology, of course, is the only thing that's going to give me those answers. And I think it's still to go up the bridge. Do you think it still affects you at some level? Because I'm, I'm a believer that this stuff never really completely and utterly leaves you. And it's just a, a case of managing it. I actually do, and uh, that's a really that's a really good question, actually, because mm. um, because the save the world thing that I've that I've gone on about uh, this last year that was kind of a, a fairly big milestone for me as far as like being able to get rid of or or release myself from this faux responsibility that I have to to save you and you and you and everybody else out there. That all comes from. The phobia induction that was installed on me when I was 17 years old, being mm. recruited to join staff. Everything we've talked about in this podcast so far, and even more, was part of my recruitment to become a staff member, was you've got to join staff because the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You're so fucked up, you don't even know how fucked up you are, and you've got to get Scientology going. And the only way to do that, of course, is to get Scientology to everybody, so you have to join staff Da, 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 da. So mm. I'd say this has been a motivating factor for me. This this fear stuff um, has been a sort of a subliminal motivating factor for me the whole time I've had my channel even. Mm. You know, you know yeah. Chris, what you're describing, I think, taps into a real thing that exists in Mormonism when you're describing fear of yourself. And it's almost like demonizing your true self that that your group is going to save you from or something. In Mormonism, we have that under the name of uh, the natural man. And so there's this description that God gives at some point in Revelation that the natural man is an enemy to God. And so even without a bogeyman, without any other thing, you've got this idea that the impulses, the ideas... And really, a lot of what this is talking about is sexuality, as you mentioned, uh, Lloyd. It turns you against yourself just at the very beginning. And so mm. if, you know, particularly going through adolescence, going through puberty, um, you, you know, your body starts to become awakened and aware and responding to issues of sexuality in a way that you never had before. And that's at that prime vulnerable age for indoctrination to work. And if you're then given this idea that the different responses that you have, if you have sexual thoughts or sexual dreams or your body responds to seeing sexual things, then that is a manifestation of this naturalistic carnal enemy to God that you are as a being of flesh, that your whole role in life is to suppress and control. And it is through that exercise of suppression and control to conform with the demands of the religious body that proves yourself as worthy of God's blessings. And I think that in particular, that whole idea is what fuels the suicides that happen for LGBT individuals, because not only are they wrestling with controlling this natural man aspect of this messaging, but they're also dealing with coming to terms with feeling like even the nature of the impulses that they're having are so far outside of what the doctrine has said is acceptable that they are inherently broken or wrong. And when they lose all hope for the future, um, you know, they, they end up going into a, a dark place, particularly if they don't have the acceptance and love and support of their family around them because of this dogma. So I think you, you're describing something that's very primal in Mormonism as well. 
Well, that's why I, I take sexual repression so seriously. And I've noticed that not everyone does, by the way. And I've, I've been very candid in my book about that side of my story because I think it's important. And there's always going to be, obviously, juvenile XJWs who, who pounce on those passages and, oh, isn't this funny? You know, but for me, it's, it's deadly serious because you're messing around with people's, you know, basic impulses and and that has very real consequences especially as you say if you're telling a gay man well it's wrong to be gay so you're telling him it's wrong for you to be you and all of a sudden in addition to having the ticking clock in addition to having the bogeyman you're also afraid of yourself so you know these <laughs> These are impossible forces to be subjecting someone to, especially in in that particular situation. And for me, it has it has profound effects on people that I'm obviously not qualified to fully go into. But at least in my own experience, I've noticed it, it's had a big impact. It's huge. Uh, you know, subverting natural impulses, biological impulses, natural behavior which we all, you know, are literally genetically built to to do mm-hmm. or to carry out and then saying it's wrong, it's evil, it's horrible. This this is one of the most insidious things you can do to somebody. And I thought this might actually be a great opportunity because there's just a few lines from this that I thought you guys might get some um I thought you guys might might be interested in this. Hubbard actually wrote a bulletin in 1982 called Pain and Sex. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple little bits because I want to show you exactly how, exactly what Jonathan's talking about here, how it's done in Scientology. Hubbard said, he even said at the very beginning, this, this bulletin probably won't increase my popularity, but I would be very remiss if I did not pass on an important discovery. There are two items in this universe that, that cause more trouble than many others combined. One is pain, the other is sex. One should know more about these things. They have many they they may have applications, but they are used by destructive beings in great volume to cave others in. Um, when pain enters a scene, a being withdraws, contracts, and can go unconscious. When sex enters the scene, a being becomes a being fixates and loses power. So sex is immediately bad. Sex is immediately taking your power away from you. Well, it depends how you do it, isn't it, really? But anyway. (laughs) Well, it's sex overall, right? (laughs) Where are those juvenile ex-Jehovah's Witnesses now? (laughs) Yeah, and he says destructive creatures who do not want people big or reaching since they're terrified of punishment due to their Mm. crimes invented, okay, get this, invented pain and sex to shrink people and cut their alertness, knowingness, power, and reach. Thus, you see people who are, quote-unquote, experiencing either pain or sex, introverting and not producing much. Pain and sex were the invented tools of degradation. And there's a lot more, but uh, just telling you this... He's literally uttering this nonsense because at some point or other two individuals had sex albeit they were unfortunate enough to produce him as their progeny 
but he is he is the product of sex, and yet here he is denouncing it as something that's unnatural. That's right. Uh, installed, much less, which mm. means, by the way, more phobia induction. Mm. Somebody, some entity out there installed it in you. Who are they? What are their... What should I still be afraid of them? Are they still out there? Are they the ones who are coming mm. to take us away? Ha ha, ho ho, he he. You know, I mean, like, what's? It, it, there's just no end to this. And these were the kind of, I guess, I, I'll call them fear bombs that Hubbard would just drop throughout his materials constantly, constantly revving up. You know, and and I wanted to comment on this in terms of the psychological mechanisms. You know that that this is all about fight or flight. This is all about getting your adrenals and your, you know, your your neural system into this overloaded state where you are at a constant level. The threat level is constantly red. And it is so much easier to control people when you can get them and keep them in that state of mind if you are a sociopath who likes people in that state of mind. I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not saying it would be easy for me to do it because I don't want people in that frame of mind. I don't think that's a healthy place to be. But cult leaders are all about getting people there because well, desperation you say, you breeds. Say that, Chris. You, know. you say that, Chris, <laughs> but I, sometimes I worry about our episodes because you know, if viewed back to back, what we're actually producing in our conversations is uh, a cult leaders 101 on how to control people and and you know at, at risk of i've got to tread very carefully here you know it's not difficult to look into the political sphere and see clear examples of fear-mongering being deployed to great effect yes so as you said it doesn't have to be cults you know we're talking any kind of group that controls people uh, and any kind of group that puts the interests of the leader ahead of the interests of the followers. And, and unfortunately, what we're discussing, it's not just Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. It has much broader application. Big time. Big time. I think Great that point. a big part of that for me was reading George Orwell's 1984. And everything that we've talked about in this episode, if you read that book, you see that he really taps into and describes in such remarkable detail how organizations can use, you know, fear to control people. And there's a great deal for me of relating to Winston in that book. And even in his efforts to try to break out of that system, there's a lot of stuff that um, it was hard for me to understand at first. There's one point in the book where he and Julia have escaped and they're in this countryside and they look at each other. And at one point they say, I want everything to be I want everyone to do bad stuff. I want everyone to do wicked things. And as a Mormon, when I read that book, I, I, it was puzzling to me by what they want. But that's because I was looking at the definition of wicked and bad from my Mormon perspective. And you really have to go into their mind and say, wait a second, what they meant by wicked and bad things is, is that they wanted people to do things which were prohibited by the organization, Big Brother, that was controlling every aspect of their lives. And that's because the morality was defined by the organization. And it, I really started to understand and relate a lot to how to kind of see these red flags of control everywhere through reading 1984. So if any of your viewers haven't had a chance to do that, there's a reason that it's a classical piece of literature that people refer to, and I would highly recommend it. 
Big time. It's practically a handbook for this stuff. Talk about Cult Leader 101 stuff. Fortunately for us in doing the work we do, we don't really have to worry about that too much because, you know, these sociopaths, these guys, they just seem to organically evolve this stuff through the course of their life. And it's interesting. I posted something yesterday because I was reminded of this fact that most cult leaders actually have been grifting almost all their life. And the cult they finally establish is the, is the grift that finally paid off. But it was far, usually far from the first thing they were trying to do. And they evolve these techniques. I mean, I saw just, your post you know, on that. And I yeah. was thinking, as soon as I saw it, I was like, well, that it totally describes Joseph Smith. You know, he right. started out doing this folk magic stuff. He had, you know, the rock and the hat. It was, you know, <laughs> doing spiritual things and then now he's using his visual aids notice i love it i love it yeah and and, you know it morphed into the the thing that stuck and unfortunately you know leading to his demise but you know it carried on it didn't really happen that way with jw's i think with with jw's you had this eccentric guy who just so happened to be fascinated in you know the the quackery the end times uh, quackery of, of his day and he he happened to also have some charisma. I'm not I'm not aware of that many failed projects mm. that Charles Taze Russell embarked on before embarking on Bible students. So he he was kind of first time lucky, but in my view, uh, having looked at the history, we wouldn't be dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses if not for his successor Joseph Rutherford, who in fact coined the term Jehovah's Witnesses, and he very much kind of came across this half complete project and and saw exactly how it could be built into something far more uh, to his benefit so yeah yeah i I thought rutherford was the was the a key in that Mm. secession line it's not like with scientology where you had it had it you had it basically fully formed under l ron hubbard didn't you yeah you just had david miscavige thinking "Mm, i'm gonna have that you know exactly and then and then just brushing anybody who got in his way uh, aside, you know. So. Well, the closing point I want to make from the Mormonism side of things is yeah. um, there's an aspect to how Mormonism started, which really acknowledges the problem with phobia induction. And Joseph Smith, the founder, used that as a way to attract people. And that is that theologically, he saw this hell fire and brimstone aspect of the burnt over district of uh, New England that was happening at the time where these preachers were out there saying, you got to, you know, get in line and get spiritually pure or else, you know, Satan will have you. And that was an aspect of the wider Christian Protestant religion and Calvinism and all these other things. And so when Joseph Smith created his religion, he reframed heaven and hell. And he said, actually, you know, it's everyone's going to go to a kingdom of heaven. You're all going to get some aspect of glory. It's only the people who join, make sacred covenants, and then later leave that will go into outer darkness. And that's sort of what hell is, but every other person. And so people who were faced with the fear of this very bleak, black and white heaven and hell paradigm could look at Mormonism as being much more universal and say, well, I can actually join that group. And then this fear that I've been feeling in this other way of looking at spiritual things will go away because it's much more universalist and universalism was getting or or had its place in that area. So it tapped into that rejection of a certain flavor of fear mongering 
but then in developing its own theology, because it's able to dangle all these carrots and, and have all of these cultural consequences of its teachings, it created a whole new flavor of fear that, like you say, you know, these people gravitate towards these things that have power over the minds of other people. And it's just a different flavor of power that they have. So well, we I'm have that in JWs as well. So a big really? thing for especially Rutherford. Well, it, Russell did it as well. But their whole thing was, oh, don't listen to the churches. They're just trying to frighten people with all this talk of hellfire. If you actually read the Bible, it says that God is, is a loving God and there's no way he would um, torment people forever in hell, or at least that's how we've interpreted it. So we're offering you a far less fear-based theology that does away with hell entirely. Um, but of course, when you read the small print, hell has just been replaced with, rather than having everlasting torment, you have Armageddon and impending destruction at any moment if you're not falling in line with what the leaders say. Yeah, exactly. And and in Scientology, as, a, as an end note for me here, I will say that I think it's worse than both y'alls because you know how they say the worst or the best of horror movies are the ones that don't show you all the gore, that don't show you what's actually happening. They leave it to your imagination. And that's what Scientology does in so many ways. Hubbard will drop these little one-liners about doom and gloom that could possibly come from many different quarters, including from within your, within you. But every one of them is a very generic sort of broad-based sort of thing, and he leaves so much to your imagination that you end up doing most of the hard work yourself imagining what could possibly happen. Either either we're going to blow ourselves up, some other group is going to come blow us up, I'm going to blow myself up. I mean, you know, so it John, can come so from Jonathan, everywhere. Chris appears to be arguing <laughs> that Scientology is the scariest because yeah. it's the scariest. Do you, do you go with that? <laughs> Um, I, I feel like some of these episodes are just us, you know, comparing, you know, mine is worse or bigger or whatever than yours. And I just let it, I let it go. That's yeah. fine. Whatever he wants. Mine's I'm, sec I'm, secure. I'm secure with how scary my former religion is. So, yes. Okay, good. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking some time here, coming around and, uh, and helping me with this. I love talking to you guys. And this, this, this series of episodes has always been the most fun. Always a pleasure. Jonathan, how do people reach you? Uh, well, they can go to the YouTube channel Thinker of Thoughts, or you can type in Thoughts on Things and Stuff in Facebook or ThoughtsOnThingsAndStuff.com on the web. Excellent. And Lloyd, how do people reach you? Telepathy. Um, yes. smoke signals, yes. prayer, um, and also um, YouTube on the John Cedars channel. Excellent. Okay, yeah. guys. Uh, folks, any questions, comments, or feedback on this podcast, good, bad, or sideways, leave them in the comments section below or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And if you are going to bitch, moan, and complain to us, and I am okay with you doing that, please refrain from ad hominem because I am not okay with that. And also uh, focus it on Jonathan. Thank yes, you. exactly. Yes, yeah. please direct all criticism towards John, because really, at, at the end of the day, it is kind of all his fault. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, talk to you next week. Bye-bye.